On November 21st, 2013, the state of Alabama posthumously pardoned the last of the Scottsboro Boys. 82 years in the making, the last of these young youths in the state of Alabama were pardoned for the convictions that they received unjustly. Unfortunately, this is a common theme that has reoccurred throughout our history, but this particular case is historical and egregious. Back in 1931, there was nine youths on their way from Memphis to Chattanooga, no jobs, the Great Depression. They were looking for work. And on this train, there was this group of nine black youths, and there was some white youths as well, and a, a fight erupted. The white youths were ejected from the train. I guess they lost the fight. And so those white youths went and alerted the rail authorities that there were some troublemakers on their line. They should take care of them. And so that's what was supposed to happen when they arrived at the next stop. But there was two young ladies dressed in overalls. They were looking to get in trouble as well under the Mann Act, which said that women who were crossing state lines for unlawful purposes could also be prosecuted. So rather than admitting what these young ladies were doing on the train... Uh, they accused those nine youths of raping them. And then the machinations of justice under Jim Crow took their force in Alabama in 1931, and those nine youths were summarily sentenced to the death penalty, all except for the 12-year-old, young Roy Wright. There was little to no evidence. Ultimately, one of the young women admitted that she had fabricated the entire thing. There was no other witnesses. The uh, forensic evidence did not align with what they were claiming. And yet, they were sentenced to death. In our country, however, thankfully, we have some procedural safeguards. The Supreme Court intervened and said the representation that those youths had in the Scottsboro Boys trial, it became very famous in plays, movies, history, was completely inadequate, so they reversed the sentence. Thank God. And of course, what did Alabama do? Turned around and convicted them again. So the Supreme Court said, no, 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 not this time. You've systematically prevented black jurors from even viewing this trial. So some very important law was created, and the, uh, the appeal was reversed. And then again, some of the youths were sentenced. Ultimately, I think four of those youths were uh, Pardon, or they weren't prosecuted again, but, but some were, and they ultimately um, re- remained convicted and were paroled. And then uh, in 1976, the governor came back around and said, you know what, we really got this wrong. And then ultimately, like I said, in 2013, it took a new state law in Alabama to be created to allow these convictions to be posthumously, that's after death, removed after all of these young boys had died, wrongfully accused and convicted. This is a terrifying state of affairs, one that has improved, but as a criminal defense attorney, I can tell you it's not fixed. But we have some important safeguards in this country. Today, the time that we're going to spend together is talking about a trial for which there has been no posthumous posthumous pardon, that of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look into the trial of God in three parts. We're going to look at the evidence that presented against him, We're going to look at the verdict that was issued. And finally, we're going to spend some time talking about the sentence which Jesus received. Now, as I mentioned, I am a criminal defense attorney. I'm a public defender here in Los Angeles. So I thought that I would try to weave some of my experiences and some legal terminology and thoughts 
into the presentation so that you can get a glimpse of what Jesus underwent. And I'm an elder here along with Pastor Trip Forgen, who's actually on a bike, I believe, at this very moment between San Francisco and Los Angeles um, with uh, another one. I think they're raising money, and it sounds pretty awesome. You've got me today, and I'm trying an iPad for the first time with my notes. We'll see how that goes. I have paper in case it doesn't go well. <laughs> so I always like to have the passage read for you all because I believe the Word of God is the most powerful testament. I, only, I can only add to that and possibly get in the way. Um, but the passage today was so long that I said that uh, Evie would just read half of it because I was going to cover the trial aspect in detail. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to get into the evidence that was presented against Jesus at his trial before Pontius Pilate. If you have your Bible, this is in John 18, starting at verse 28. And there's some themes I want you to have in mind as you hear the evidence that is presented because, as you know, we've been studying John for a number of months now. And we like to think about why is John telling us why he's telling us, and why is Jesus doing what he's doing. And John, at the end of the book of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, says that the reason why he's telling us what he's telling us is so that we might believe. John was the last gospel writer of the four gospels, so he already sort of knows what's out there. He knows what other people have told, and he wants to fill in some of those details, and he wants to paint in the colors. And ultimately, his goal is that you would believe that Christ came for you. And so John, as he gives the most detailed account of Jesus' trial with Pontius Pilate, is looking to do some things. And I would present to you that he's looking to present a couple of themes here. One is the intense irony of the, of the head of the Roman government there in, in Palestine, as well as the head of the Jewish um, leaders in the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. They think that they are doing their own kind of justice. They think that they are doing, uh, protecting their interests or doing right. But the irony is thick. It's dripping through these passages as they say things like, here's your king, which they're meaning to mock, to belittle Christ. And yet, it's true. And yet, it's true. So John is trying to present the deep irony of the trial of Christ and how unjust it was, but how it brought about God's great justice. And I also want to have you look out for this theme of the Passover, because that's something that John is trying to weave in. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. So we'll start off in verse 28. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Okay, so you have a couple of things right off the bat. Number one, John sort of skips the Caiaphas trial. There's a whole religious trial that preceded this. It's sort of a preliminary hearing, if anyone knows Uh, legal terms, you probably don't, but we have that here in Los Angeles. Basically, it's the first bit of a trial where you present some evidence, but just enough to show that there's enough to make this thing stick. The true trial is going to be later um, in front of the Roman government, because that's where the, the political power flows from. And so essentially, Pontius Pilate is the ultimate authority, some of that has been delegated to the Jewish authorities. They can actually implement some of their own uh, punishments and laws, but ultimately, Pontius Pilate is over those Jewish local authorities. And so that trial has happened, and now Jesus is presented to the, the appellate court, the, the one level up where Pilate is. And it says it's early in the morning, so this means that it was probably somewhere around 6 a.m., which... Unless you're working on East Coast time and telecommuting, that's not when most of us start our days. But back in ancient times, that actually was fairly common for the Roman government to get started at that time. But it sort of belies an interesting component, which is under this entire trial, which is that this was done in an unjust and unfair way. 
this trial is happening now at 6 a.m., but guess what? From when Jesus was arrested the night before, and now another trial had occurred. And it's no leap of the imagination to think that they usually don't do their business overnight. Usually the Sanhedrin doesn't hold trials between midnight and 6 a.m. So something fishy is going on here. And legal scholars, or I guess historical scholars, have looked back and said that was violating the Sanhedrin's own rules to have a trial overnight. And yet here they are saying, you know, Pontius Pilate administered justice. And the reason why they do so here, they they go to Pilate and they say, uh, Pilate, we want you to do this trial, but we can't come into your palace because we don't want to become ceremonially unclean. And this is where that irony starts. Here they are saying, we want to do everything right. We want to follow all the rules. And the rules were that if you entered into the palace of the Gentiles, you would become ceremonial unclean. And there's a series of laws and procedures. You could become clean again. But this was the high holy week. So they don't want to miss out. They're saying we want to follow all the rules while at the same time violating justice, due process. Another lawyer term for you. They're clearly violating due process, but in the meantime, they're keeping their little scruples in place. So John starts off with that theme. It goes on. It says, Pilate came out to them and said, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate indulges them. He is the head of, essentially, the Jewish state in Palestine at this time. So he has to deal with them. He knows he has to kind of play by their rules some. So he comes out so that they don't become ceremonial and clean. And really, he wouldn't have normally been in the area. But because of the High Holy Week, he was there. So he comes out and basically says, okay, what charges are you bringing against this man? Now, this would have been a shock to the Jewish leaders. We know that Pilate is not hearing about this for the first time. After all, he had dispatched a battalion or a garrison, some soldiers the night before. So the Roman government is already involved on some level, and likely there had been some papers or some sort of presentation on some level to the Roman government already. And yet he comes out and says, what charges are you bringing against this man? Which might explain the surliness of the response. It might explain why the Jews, instead of uh, just kind of getting the rubber stamp that they were hoping for, respond uh, in an obstinate way. They say, if you were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. And this brings up another interesting legal aspect of the time. Um, In California, if you lose your case, your case can be appealed generally on different levels. And there's a number of different procedural rules about what the appellate court looks at. Normally, they can't do the whole thing over. And that's very disappointing to a lot of my clients because they want to have a new trial. They don't get to have a new trial. They get to, the appellate court looks at little bitty issues. But certain situations allow what's called a trial de novo a trial de novo, which is a new trial. And in ancient Palestine and Rome, the, the governing Roman leader was able to do a trial de novo, or he could do more of a regular appellate process. And here, it appears that Pilate is going to offer a trial de novo. He's going to say, prove to me why this man should die. And so the Jews would have been frustrated by this. Their plans that they had put in in secret overnight, they'd hoped to just slip it through before perhaps the supporters of Jesus, the ones that maybe Ian had mentioned from Palm Sunday, they were out there. We don't know who all those people were, but maybe they're trying to get things through before the the people who were on Jesus' side get involved or the the energy of the crowd dissipates. Um, But Pilate says, no, prove it to me. And then he even takes it a little bit further. In verse 31 he says, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So now we're getting into some some gamesmanship. He says, 
or the Jews reply, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. And this is true. You can look this up through external sources beyond the Bible that historically the local leaders in states that were under the rule of Rome um, did not have the capital power, the power to execute. This was part of Rome's exertion of power. Um, Certainly there were instances where mob rule took over. You know, Stephen in the book of Acts was killed by a crowd and stoned. But it seems for whatever reason, the Jewish leaders here didn't want to simply stone Jesus. I mean, if you read through the Gospels that I actually tried a couple times. But here, they, for their own design, want to have the worst possible punishment. That reserved for the worst criminals, the most shameful, that which cannot be administered to a Roman citizen or a soldier. Crucifixion is what they want for Christ. They want to show those who might follow him that he is weak and humbled and not the Messiah that they thought he was. And yet, and yet, God and John lay on the irony, the hidden meaning. Christ all along knew this was the way. He was to be cursed. He was to be hung on the tree. And this theme goes through John. John is showing the sovereign hand of God in these worst of circumstances, how God is involved in the intimate details of this climactic moment of Jesus' life. He's showing that before the beginning of time, this was the plan. And you'll see he weaves in Old Testament predictions. He weaves in Zechariah and the Psalms. He weaves in the books of Moses to show this was the plan. It had to be this way. And so, Pilate decides to move forward with the trial after essentially mocking the Jews and their lack of power. He says, Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus. The trial is to begin. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now you'll find that the Jews have changed their tact here. In their religious trial, the question wasn't, was he claiming political power? The question was, was he blaspheming? Was he claiming to be God? Because under religious law, that would have been a violation. But Rome does not care about internal Jewish laws being violated. So they shift tact and they say, Pilate, you should be worried because he's claiming to be king. And you follow the king. You follow Tiberius Caesar. Threatening. So they've changed the charge. And now Pilate is inquiring. And Jesus raises an objection. He says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Hearsay. Objection hearsay. You're not allowed to bring evidence without presenting witnesses. And Jesus is pointing this out. He's saying, where is this coming from? You're not bringing proof. Where did you hear this from? But what's amazing is it's not just a legal objection. And for those of you who don't know what hearsay is, it's basically you can't just repeat what someone says without bringing them in. There's a bunch of... Um, actually, I'm not going to get into any further. That's the big idea um, of what, what hearsay is. And basically, Christ, rather than just giving a yes or no answer, is doing what he always does. He's, he's being incredibly nuanced and thoughtful. And what's beautiful here is that not only is he raising this legal objection that ultimately will fulfill God's purpose in making this trial be something that doesn't convict him justly, but he's also speaking into Pilate's heart. He's also piercing through the, the shell that Pilate has developed around himself, and he's going after him personally. 
Did others talk to you about me? Are you feeling pressure? Why are you doing this, Pilate? What is causing you to have this trial even? What's motivating you? He's trying to ask questions to get at the heart of the matter. And I present to you that this is what he does for us still. And this is what we're to do for one another as well. As we counsel one another, as we see things going on, we don't just say objection hearsay, but we dig in deeper and we say, why are you doing this? And we ask questions to dig deeper. And that's for people who are amongst our community, and that's for people who we're just encountering out in public as well. Pilate didn't have a previous relationship here, and yet Jesus still cares about him. So Pilate responds. It's sort of raising the the angst here against Jesus as well, because he's thinking maybe he's being attacked, and he doesn't like the position he's being put in. Verse 35 says, Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus has already changed the pacing of this trial. You don't see this in my trials generally. I mean, sometimes my clients, if I put them on the stand, they do sort of take things over and it goes a totally other direction than what I had planned, which seems to be what's happening here. And I often tell my clients, don't testify. It doesn't go well when they testify. But Jesus here is testifying and he's taking control of what's happening. Verse 36 goes on, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Again, this is deft testimony from the master. What he's saying here, he's accomplishing two things. One, he's avoiding walking into this trap that's being laid out for him on cross-examination. Essentially, Pilate wants him just to say, yeah, I'm a king, and then he can basically go along with it, and it's, you know, he can go execute him, it's no big deal, and it's all done. But Jesus isn't allowing Pilate that avenue of saying, I'm trying to invade the political province. He's saying, my kingdom is not, not of this world. I'm not threatening Caesar directly in the way that would violate your laws. I'm putting the pressure on you, Pilate, to make a decision here. It's going to fulfill God's purpose, but it's not going to be just. You are going to have to make this decision. But what he's also doing is telling the truth about who he is. Because if he had just said, no, I'm not a king, that would not be true. Jesus is of the line of David, which had long been promised that the king for eternity would come from David's line. Jesus is a king. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is of eternity. His kingdom is of heaven. And his kingdom is breaking in to the world at this very moment. And it's continuing to break into the world now. Jesus is a king and he was the king, but it's not what Pilate meant. He's not going to allow him to be pinned down in the way that he's wanting. So Pilate, though, says, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. This echoes back to to Christ's claim about being the truth throughout John. He is the truth, and that's why he came, was this testimony culminating in this series of events that lead to the hill, that lead to Golgotha, that lead to Calvary. He is the truth, and that is what he's come to do. He hasn't come to take over Tiberius Caesar's rule. He's come to bring the truth for eternity. And I love, love, love Pilate's response because it's very postmodern. It's very much the response that we hear these days. Pilate says, What is truth? What is truth? And this is a question we often ask. We hear people ask. We stall out and spin in circles on because we don't care what the answer is. We just want to ask the question so we don't get pinned down by it. And that's exactly what Pilate does. He walks away and he doesn't wait for the answer. He says, What is truth? And he doesn't wait to find out what the answer is. He doesn't want to allow Christ to pierce into his heart with these questions. Maybe he's uncomfortable with where this is going. 
he's seeing who he truly is as well, and he would rather retain power. He would rather have this situation not be happening at all. He wants to get out of it. He walks away. Jesus, I'm done letting you push me with these questions. And of course, it's a rebuke of Pilate that Christ is saying this to him. What is truth? Clearly, you, Pilate, are not the one, not the the one who protects truth, who cares about truth. This trial is not about truth. It's about something else. It's about God's purposes underneath, ironically, but for you, Pilate, it's not about truth. So what does Pilate do? Pilate is a politician. He's a gamesman. He wants to get out of this, like I said. So he goes out to the crowds. Remember, Jesus is inside the palace. I guess he's being ceremonially defiled inside the palace, but the Jews, because they're holy and pious, are outside. So Pilate goes out, and you have this funny scene where Pilate's going back and forth uh, four different times. And he says to the, the crowd, uh, with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, when this happens in a trial that I do, that means it's over. It's done. Not guilty. We're done with this. And so what Pilate is wanting to do is he's hoping that they're just going to they're going to roll over. They're going to be okay with it. But he wants to throw in a little bit of an insurance policy. He wants them to think it's their idea, just to you know, kind of brush this whole incident behind us, forget about the whole Jesus thing, all the followers he had, Palm Sunday, the palm branches. Let's put that in the past. Let's discredit this leader so that we can move forward in Pilate's power. Jews, you can keep your power. So he says, uh, it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. And I mentioned this idea of Passover starting to be woven in as well. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So apparently this, and they verified this historically, this was a practice where they would allow one person to receive a pardon, not because of justice, but because of mercy. Um, Had to do, I guess, with... uh, their Passover, I believe, um, to release one prisoner. And Pilate's thinking, this is easy. They're, of course, going to want to release uh, Christ. Why would they want to release someone else? Because I've already um, you know, showed what my verdict's going to be. And so they can kind of save face here, and it'll be their idea. It'll be taken care of. And then we'll get to move forward. And yet, they say, give us Barabbas. And this is that irony that John is weaving in here by pointing this out, because Barabbas is the one who actually did what Jesus is accused of doing, right? He's the one who participated in an uprising. He was probably a zealot who was trying to fight against the crown of Rome or against the kingdom. And they said, give us him instead, even though he was justly condemned. And so the Jews have essentially outflanked Pilate here. Now he's in trouble because he's sort of made his sentence, but instead of following through and just releasing Jesus and saying, it's done, you know, I've I've made my ruling, he's now given them this inroads that they're going to Um, to take advantage of. He uh, thinks he was outflanking them, but he really hasn't. And so he decides to take it one step further. It says, starting in in chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Okay, so releasing Barabbas was enough. Maybe Pilate is thinking, maybe I can reduce Jesus so much that they'll just think it's not worth it anymore. Historically, this is kind of an interesting point for historical scholars because there's a bit of a an apparent conflict between the gospel narratives about what this means in John when it says we had him flogged. Because there was a couple different types of flogging. And the sequence in John is different than the other gospels. There was a type of flogging that was done 
um, just for hooliganism, for light criminals. It was a severe beating. It was called the Fustigatio, not Latin, or I don't really know how to say that, but or it might be Italian even. The Fustigatio um, was really a warning that was given to you to administer this beating and then release them, um, and that was the end of things. That was the sentence. There was a medium level for more serious offenses called the Flagellatio, um, which was more serious, but then the most serious kind of beating is the Verabatio. Yeah, Verabatio. Okay, you guys get the idea. There's words I don't know how to say that um, relate to these three levels of floggings. Traditionally, we always think of the Verabatio as the one we think about with Christ. You see it in the Passion of the Christ. It's got the the whips with the cat of nine tails and the pieces of bone and glass. That's the most severe type, and it's generally associated with capital punishment. It can't even be done to the Romans or the soldiers, and generally has to go with an execution sentence. All right? So that's what we're normally used to, and yet here, Pilate does this halfway through the trial. He flogs Jesus. And so I think the best way to read this is to say that Pilate gave that light beating first. Pilate gave two floggings of Christ. The first one here was the lighter beating, the fustigatio, and the purpose of Pilate flogging in verse 1 is to reduce Christ, to make him beaten into a bloody pulp so that the Jews would give up. Um, Verse 2 goes on, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe, and they went up to him again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. They're humiliating him, and they're showing the Jews that this is ridiculous. They put him in king's clothes, this practice would have been just sort of dirty soldier games where they do that. And so essentially Pilate's getting them all beat up and he brings them back out in verse 4 and says, Once more Pilate came out, said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Here is the man. So Pilate's second ploy, his second attempt to avoid having to condemn this man who he knows is unjustly accused, fails. Because the Jews turn around and they say, crucify him, crucify him. The Jews are not satisfied. The crowd is getting angry. And Pilate is not being successful in his attempt to avoid taking responsibility here. So Pilate answers, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now in verse 7, the Jewish leaders are letting the truth of the matter come out. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. So mid-trial, they're essentially changing the charges to what really aren't charges for Rome. They're sort of giving up on that he's claiming to invade the kingdom, now saying he's claiming to be God. Uh, And this puts pressure on Pilate in a different way. Not in a just legal proceeding way, but in the who am I going to be out here for, justice or myself way. So Pilate is starting to feel the pressure. He goes back in and he talks to Jesus in the palace. He says, where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. This is the same thing that Jesus did in one of his religious trials where he stops answering when there's not a point anymore. Um, He's not beholden to Pilate And so he's not going to play this game at this moment. And Pilate's getting nervous. Um, He's realizing that things are getting out of control. And Jesus' calmness, Jesus' aura, his person, I'm sure at this point is starting to invade Pilate's consciousness as well, knowing the person of Christ throughout his life, his calmness. And so Pilate's looking at him and realizing this is not like other prisoners. This person is not like others who are accused. He's not acting like the accused. He has this otherworldly calmness about him. 
Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? So Pilate opens himself up again to one of Jesus' critiques, his probing questions. Pilate thinks he holds the power. That's what matters to Pontius Pilate. That's his identity. And Christ gets the heart of the matter. You would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus is calling out Pilate's limitations you would almost expect Pilate to lash out in some way, but I think Pilate knew that this was true. He's feeling fear, it says, at this time. And so rather than deciding to just go ahead and issue the, the verdict that they're asking for, it says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, like I said, they've already sort of let go of that that first charge. Now the Jews are using leverage. They're using political leverage at this point. Historically, this term, friend of Caesar, became uh, a term of art. It actually meant like a specific type of title. We don't know if in the third third decade of the, the new millennium or whatever, of 31 or 33 AD when this was, if that had actually happened yet. But either way... The Jews are getting at the heart of Pilate's greatest fears. The same thing that Jesus was poking at. Now the Jews are ripping into. Pilate, we are going to tell Caesar if you don't come down on this guy. Historically, we know that Pilate was not the most favored of Tiberius Caesar's underlings. Palestine was not a particularly desired place to go and rule. And actually, the person who had gotten Pilate into power, a guy named Sejanus, had actually been... Uh, executed, taken out of power, and all of his friends have been executed as well in AD 31. So Pilate probably feels a little bit insecure with his post here. And the last thing he wants is the locals and the local government, which is a part of his government in a way, to send word up to Rome. There was someone challenging the crown, Caesar, and Pilate did nothing. We tried to administer justice. He refused. We wanted him executed, and Pilate wouldn't. So Pilate is caught into a catch-22 Am I going to do justice, or am I going to protect myself? Pilate decides to protect himself. So now we're on to the verdict. It seemed like a verdict had been issued three times. I find no guilt in this man. And yet, Pilate brings out the judgment seat. It says in verse 12, From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, In verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out. So now Jesus is out in front of them, and he sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement, which is the Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon, so maybe six hours later. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. One last chance. This pathetic person, here he is. Let him go. Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate's last gasp. And this is really the crux, the turning point, the the heart of the matter. The Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. And John is careful to point out, it's the the chief priest who answered this. So finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus.
these chief priests were charged with protecting everything, the whole history of the Jewish people, to be a, a picture to the world of what God is like, to invite them in, to be the hope of the world. And what was their, their role? In Isaiah 26, 13, it says, O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, like Rome, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. The Jews' king is God. And yet, these chief priests in this moment, to pin Pilate down and to reveal their own hearts and their own power struggles, say, we have no king but Caesar. They have turned their back on the God of the universe, the, the leaders of the Jewish community, right there, step forward, and they commit that blasphemy. They say, our king is Caesar, not God. D.A. Carson says this, their repudiation of Jesus and the name of pretended loyalty to their emperor entailed their repudiation of the promise of the kingdom of God with which the gift of the Messiah is inseparably bound in Jewish faith. Israel's vocation is to be its heir and its instrument, its proclaimer to the nations. They're abdicating that. This is the ultimate evidence and support of the pronouncement at the beginning of John, which is that he came to that which was his own, but they did not receive him. What the Jews should have been looking for, the Messiah, the King, they miss, and at that most climactic moment, they reject their entire mission. The tragedy of it is overwhelming. And then, and then, the verdict is issued. It's interesting that John doesn't record Pilate saying, okay, I do find guilt. He sort of complicitly goes along, but he doesn't say, that's my verdict, although he's brought out that judgment seat. But clearly, he complicitly goes along because he's the one with the, the authority to execute, and that's what he issues. He issues the unjust verdict of execution. It's interesting that at the climactic moment, an unjust verdict is what's issued. It's interesting for us because we often long for justice. We often long for justice, but it took an unjust moment at this most important moment for God's perfect plan to come through. And really, throughout history, throughout the the biblical story, we see these themes of mercy and justice pounding against each other, and it took this moment of Christ coming to the cross to see how both could be perfectly fulfilled and satisfied. We're going to explore that a little bit more in a moment. But I want to ask you all, I know that we have a lot of text to go through, we're through a lot of it here, but I want to turn it over to you all a little bit with this idea of this great reversal of God being put on trial. Because I submit to you that for most of history, it was the other way around, where People were worried about being put on trial. We were worried about being put on trial. C.S. Lewis, in a famous series of essays that were put together after his death, uh, captured this idea called God in the Dock. It was the name of the essays. And the idea is this. He says, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge, if God should have reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench as the judge, like Pilate, and God is in the dock. Now the dock 
in other societies in England is about a waist high. It's kind of the witness stand where the defendant would go and sit and tell their part of it. So normally that's where the defendant should be, but C.S. Lewis is saying in the modern era, we've switched places. Instead of us being judged, we're now judging God. We've put God in the dock, just as was done on this fateful day with Pilate. So my question for all of you is, what ways do you put God in the dock? In what ways do you forget that you're the one who perhaps should be judged and instead have taken the place of judge? And if it's your first time here, we do actually encourage some conversation when we ask those kinds of questions. I'll let you know if it's a hypothetical. Unanswered prayers? Unanswered prayers. We deem our godly and should be answered. And if you didn't answer them, you're not there, you don't care. Yeah, it's almost like, God, if you're good... You'll do this, and then if he doesn't do it, you're like, well, that must mean that he's not good because those were the terms I put out. I think even, even closer, because here's the way I want it to go. And if you don't do it my way, you're not. Yeah, that's like taking a step further, not only judging God, but being God. I, wanna, I want things to go my way. Well, you touched it, you hear it from the other side when people will question someone's faith by saying, God can't exist, if God existed, there wouldn't be any cancer in children, there wouldn't be any disease, there wouldn't be suffering. That's the hardest one to... Yeah. Yeah, those apologetic questions that now the whole conversation is shifted. It's like historically, C.S. Lewis is right. That was never the big concern. Everyone sort of assumed there's something bigger than me and I need to appease it in some way. And now that's not the assumption at all. Right, yeah, it's almost like, God, I will be obedient as long as I understand why you're doing this. But if I don't understand, then the obedience thing is off the table, which is really not the biblical way that God talks to us often. One more, maybe? Hope. I think, like, in the political climate on both sides, there's a lot of, like, if this happens, like, what's going on? How could this be this way for, like, people? And no matter what, like, people feel that way. Yeah, that's the, some of the times where we look for our hope and our control is to the political and it runs out and now you're panicking and you don't know what's going on. I don't know if that captures what you're saying, but... No. <laughs> I think that we have a problem with God's sovereignty. Yeah. If he's sovereign, then nothing happens without his permission. And he's not surprised by it. He knows it's happening. and going to happen. And knew it before the foundation of the world ever laid. But because we don't understand, we invite. Right. So we elevate our ignorance to pointing a guilty finger at God. Right. And it's like we, we sort of like sovereignty sometimes when it's in our favor, sure. but the other times we're like, no, that, that can't be how God works. Exactly. All right, so we put God in the dock, but I want to submit to you that the biblical picture is that it should not have been Christ who is being flogged, who ultimately did receive those cat of nine tails on his back and was put on a tree, it should be us. That that's the place where we belong, was in trial before Pilate. And if we tried to do what Christ did, of 
of coming up with deft ways and ultimately displaying that he's not guilty, we would fail. Because the reality is that we are guilty. And when we look at the cross of Christ, as we move forward towards Good Friday, the soberness, the weight of that should nearly crush us. Because that's the reality, is that before the sovereign God of the universe who is holy and perfect, we cannot stand. We deserve the death penalty. We deserve the crucifixion. We deserve what Christ is now being sentenced with, and yet he knew no sin. So the sentence, the text that have you read for us, is what Christ underwent, even though it was unjust. It says in verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side. Now historically, to try to paint a picture here, uh, it's not like some of the pictures you see where you have the entire cross. It would have been just the cross bar that would have been put on his back. And we know, uh, and this kind of ties into those floggings he received, that he didn't even make it all the way up on the hill. John doesn't describe this, but he makes it to the edge of the city, and then Simon of Cyrene has to carry it the rest of the way because of the blood that he's lost, the punishment that he's already undergone. And historically, uh, we know that a crucifixion would have included uh, a person's hands being... Uh, out in the side in the classic posture. We don't know whether it would have been through the hand or through the wrist. It would have uh, had the legs either tied or nailed to the cross. And there was a, a little stand that would have been right under the, the person's feet. And it, at first glance, that seems like a merciful thing to have a little stand that you can stand on so that maybe you can rest. But the whole thing about crucifixion is it's the worst possible way to die. You don't actually die from blood loss or from pain. You die from suffocation which is a horribly painful way to go. And you begin thirsting, you begin in hunger. And so what a person would do when they can't support their weight, it cuts off the ability to breathe and you would die much more quickly, mercifully. But if you have this thing under your feet, then you're able to take some of the weight off until you struggle and struggle and struggle. And normally, the crucifixion would take two to three days to complete. Two to three days is how much suffering would normally be in place. And in verse 19, there's some more details. Pilate had continued his sort of sparring with the Jews about the meaning of this whole thing. And he puts a sign above Jesus' head that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so the Jews object. Uh, Many of the Jews read the sign. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And they said, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And this is John sort of writ large saying, You know, this is the irony here. They don't want it, but this is who Jesus actually is. And it's written in those three languages, the local Aramaic language that the people from Palestine would have spoken, the lingua franca, and also the official sort of legal language in Latin so that everyone could see. And that was historically accurate as well. They'd put that up there to be uh, deterrence, kind of like the death penalty is supposed to do. We won't get into that here in America, but it's the purpose is for other people to see it and not do what that guy did. And that's why it's out there, but it's, it's filled with all this irony. And so the Jews, at this point, starting to get into this irony of the Passover as well, because it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And so Pilate, continuing this sort of interaction with the Jews about their religious um, qualms, is allowing this special procedure, because if these bodies were allowed up past sunrise, it would have contaminated the land and messed up the whole ceremony. And so there was a procedure that was done, it was known as the curafragium, uh, where they would go and they would break the legs of the people who were on the cross so that they would die more quickly. So that they would die more quickly. 
um, that would sort of take away the power of that step that they had, and they would suffocate. And so uh, that's what's ordered. And so the Roman soldiers go up, and they go and break the legs of the guys on either side, and they discover that Jesus was already dead. And this would have um, been part of what I talked about, how John is weaving in the, the Passover into uh, the sentence of Christ and what he's receiving, because this is a theme that's throughout the Old Testament. It's something that um, this whole week was part of this big festival for, and it comes from the ancient times after uh, the beginning of the exodus of the Jews from Egypt, where um, Moses is taking over for the people, and he's saying, basically, let my people go, if you've seen the Disney version. And uh, there's a series of plagues, and the, the, the greatest plague of all was the one that was the worst, where Pharaoh wasn't letting them go, and then finally God creates a way for them to go, and he says, the firstborn will be killed if you don't let the people go, and Pharaoh is recalcitrant, he says, no, they can't go, and, and God says, okay, then the last plague is going to come, but he pr- provides a special way for the sentence to be passed over. And instead of just being not done at all, the sentence is not done to the, the oldest child, but God allows a perfect unblemished lamb to be sacrificed instead. And the Jews were told that if they, they sacrificed the lamb, they could take a hyssop and they could put it on their doorpost. And then when the spirit of death comes by, then the Lord would know that a, a lamb was killed instead. And then that, that tradition was supposed to be celebrated every year by the Jews. And it was this beautiful picture of God's salvation both out of Egypt and his mercy towards his people. And this was deeply uh, part of the story of Jewish identity. And this was the week where Jesus is. And John is crafting this story to ultimately say, Jesus is the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God. At the, you hear John the Baptist saying that about him at the beginning of his ministry. And here he is now. And John weaves in these little details. On the cross, they use the the hyssop branch to raise up the thirst to Jesus. Hyssop was the same thing that was used on the doorpost to spread the blood. And here, as Jesus is about to get his legs broken with a big hammer, they realize it's not necessary because he's dead. And that fulfills the scripture that his body wouldn't be broken, just as the lamb must be unblemished with no bones broken in its body. So John is painting this picture that Jesus is a Lamb of God and that somehow he is to be receiving the punishment that otherwise would fall to the oldest child. Verse 23 talks about the garments of Jesus. It says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. Those garments were seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture that's being spoken about is Psalm 22. And so we're going to sort of land this message in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was a mystery. Psalm 22 would have been unexplainable to Jewish readers. There was no way to understand how King David, who is the author of many psalms, and Psalm 22, could be writing what he's writing. Psalm 22 is a picture of the suffering servant on the cross. In verse 18, the the reference, they divided my clothes among them and cast them, the lots for the garment. Um, And then later, this in verse 28 in John, it says that I am thirsty. And there's a A verse in Psalm 22, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay 
You lay me in the dust of death. Probably also referenced another psalm as well. But what I want to submit to you as we wrap up our time talking about the cross and the culmination of Christ was that this was the moment where Psalm 22 was explained. Psalm 22 is like many of David's psalms where he's crying out in agony, but in this psalm he's not raging, he's not fighting back, he's being executed. David is talking about his execution, he's talking about the people circling in around him. It says, all who mock me, in verse 7, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Psalm 22 is when David was executed, but David was never executed. There was no explanation for what is happening there. For years, the scholars wondered. And John, through his references, and through this scene, is bringing that to a culmination. He's also bringing to mind what the other authors of the gospel shared, which is verse 1 of Psalm 22, which also appears in Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus Christ cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No doubt, the psalmist in Christ himself was experiencing pain from the flogging, from the crucifixion itself. But this cry of agony is not about the pain he experienced. It's about the pain that came from his separation with God. Christ had known intimacy with the Father throughout eternity. And yet, and yet, Habakkuk says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The sins of the world were placed on Christ, and that is the weight that Christ is bearing. That is why the Father is not looking at Christ at this climactic moment. John MacArthur drives us home because it's a very troubling thought. It sort of contradicts what we think of the character of God. How could this perfect unity that we know of the Father, Son, and the Spirit be separated? How could there be forsaken? It doesn't make sense. John MacArthur through laying together a number of scriptures, I think, drives this home for those of you who are having this question. And I'm going to put it on the screen to help tie it together. He says, The Father forsook the Son because the Son took upon himself our transgressions and our inequities, referencing Isaiah. Jesus was delivered up because of our transgression in Romans. Died for our sins according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians. He knew no sin and he became sin on our behalf. In Corinthians, he became a curse for us in Galatians. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross in 1 Peter, and he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, and became the propitiation of our sins in 1 John, meaning he appeased, making a well-disposed, making a deity turn divine wrath away. This was the moment that everything had led to My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken because he became sin for you, for your sin was taken like the perfect unbroken lamb and placed on him so that you won't go to trial. Jesus' final words. It is finished. It is finished. Jesus accomplished what he came to do through the Father. In verse 
chapter 17, verse 4, he had told us, I glorified you on earth, have I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And here he does it. He accomplished the final thing, the culmination of it all, the crucial moment. It is finished. The work that you gave me to do is now done. It's brought to completion would be another way of saying it. He's not crying defeat. He's not saying, I'm done and you've beaten me. He's saying that important work, the teleo, the, the, telesa, the telestai, the English translation, doesn't really give it its full meaning. In religious context, the overtone would be fulfilling your religious obligations. Jesus has done what he set out to do for you and for me. And I submit to you that at the end of time, there will be judgment. There will be a trial in which you are put in the dock. God will not be there. But returning to my theme of legal remedies, we have the ability of pointing to God and saying, double jeopardy, this trial has already occurred. You cannot try me again because the trial has happened and Christ took my sentence, so I don't have to. And the amazing thing is, we're not just found not guilty. We receive his sonship. We receive the ability to step into all that's his. We're now sons and daughters of God because of this work that he's done on the cross and because of his resurrection three days later. So as we look forward to Friday, we always remember what happens Sunday. Because while Christ said on the cross, it is finished, he triumphantly returns, conquering death so that we no longer have to be afraid of death, knowing that we have a sentence of life forever with God above. Let me pray. Father God, our hearts are rent as we think about the pain that you endured for us on the cross. The brutal picture of your suffering, the flogging, the nails, the shame, the humiliation that you willfully, willingly took for us. Thank you that that trial allows us to plead before the Father, double jeopardy, you have protected us, you have found a way to overcome and to fulfill perfect justice. The justice was meted out upon you, even though you experienced an unjust trial. There was justice done so that mercy could be given to us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.